0: Welcome to the Neil Garfield Show, a presentation sponsored by www.livinglives.wordpress.com, GTC Honored, and The Garfield Firm, serving all 50 states with news and analysis,
1: And hello, this is Neil Garfield, and this is Thursday, December 15th, 2016. We'll be off for the winter holidays and come back on January 5th. Uh, Might have a show next week. We're working on it. I am relentless. For 10 years, I've been pursuing the truth about this gigantic bank fraud and educating as many people, lawyers, judges, and government officials as I can. But as time passes, we get piece by piece the truth and the way the banks did it. Tonight, we give you one more piece. Stay tuned. The general rule when you speak the truth, I think this was pointed out by George Orwell, in a world of untruths, is that first they laugh at you when you're regarded uh, later as a danger. They get mad at you because some people start to believe it. Then they fight you with everything they have, and finally they're forced to accept it. Currently, we are in phase three with them fighting me and, the, and those who have realized that Um, What I've been saying since 2006 is true, that these loans are no good, the foreclosures are a fraud, the loans were a fraud, and the mortgage-backed securities were a fraud. The big guns from big law firms are coming out of the shadows to fight people like me, and uh, my co-host, Charles Marshall, Uh, has experienced that as well, as we bring the battle to their doorstep. And I think I mentioned in the last show that we had an interesting admission come up recently when one of the major servicers admitted what I have been saying for years. Despite all their denials and all appearances to the contrary, Nearly all foreclosures eventually uh, come or ultimately come from one source, LPS Black Knight in Jacksonville, Florida. The servicer admitted that the system of records of the servicer is kept by LPS. You remember them, right? Those are the people who published a menu of services with prices for the fabrication and forgery of documents. Now, of course, there was a big to-do about that and all that, but very few people asked why they had to fabricate and forge documents if the loans were real. And people didn't ask that because they knew money showed up at the table. But what I have been saying and what's been corroborated, both in court actions where I've won the case and in uh, consulting on hundreds of others is that the reason they had to fabricate and forge is that they lied to begin with. And when you're functioning on the basis of a lie, you have to tell more lies to cover it up. And the way they tell more lies is by producing more fabricated documents so it literally looks like the greater weight of the evidence because there's all these papers piled up. These are the people, LPS, whose affiliate Doc X had Lorraine Brown admit that she alone was responsible for the fabrications and forgeries, and she alone went to jail with, I, as I've said before, I'm sure sufficient compensation and assurances to have taken the fall for everyone else. Just to reiterate my opinion, which is based upon deep background sources, the services keep records of payments, but LPS recreates those records and then supplies information which they create that their lawyers tell them is required to get the foreclosure. So now... Since Doc X went out of business, we have evolved to a higher level of fraud because of technology. Bill Patelow, who has been on the show many times, obtained information from a large bank vendor, Visionet Systems, Inc., that it rectifies lost notes by reapplying the signature images upon stored copies. So what that means is for a note that supposedly is lost or destroyed, maybe it is, maybe it isn't, they'll produce any number of original notes Out of your one promissory note, all they need is a sample of your signature. The blue ink, they'll do it. The indentations on the paper, they'll do it. And they boast that they're the best at it. Go look at Visionet, V-I-S-I-O-N-E-T, and my blog article today. The production of original notes that were previously destroyed is an illegal practice that violates law as well as the $25 billion mortgage settlement consent orders. And my biggest takeaway question, which I will pose to my co-host, is this why is the fabrication and forgery and robo-signing of documents necessary if these were all bona fide loans? I say they were not bona fide loans and that the loan documents were fabrications that the borrower was fraudulently induced to sign. In other words, the way I see it is everybody who, who consciously or unintentionally did business with the the too-big-to-fail banks on these residential so-called loans, everyone was defrauded. And government and the Federal Reserve, which is sort of government, has made a decision that even though all these acts were illegal and fraudulent and maybe even criminal, that the best way of handling the crisis that happened, that finally was revealed in 2008, after I had predicted it uh, and even predicted the order uh, in which the investment houses would fall and which ones would fall and which ones wouldn't, the... Basic notion here is that the money that showed up at the supposed closing table was really the money of investors who didn't know they were in the deal. They had invested money thinking that they were buying mortgage bonds issued by what turned out to be an inactive trust that was never funded with their money, and that money was supposed to be used by the trust to buy portfolios of loans, not originate them, to buy them. Instead, their money was used to originate, and it was used contrary to everything that they had agreed with the large bank underwriters. So my question, well, first of all, we continue with Attorney Charles Marshall, who joins me as co-host of the show tonight, and um, uh, Charles is uh, an attorney in California, so he works in a non-judicial uh, environment, and I work in, on the East Coast, Florida which is a judicial state. Most of the states are non-judicial, by the way, uh, but many of them are judicial. So my question, Charles, thank you for joining me again, is... Great to be on again, Neil. What's your take on the revelation about Visionet? Um,
2: well, I'll get into that like literally in just a few moments. I did want to say that in uh, a time of universal deceit, telling the truth is a revolutionary act.
1: That, yeah, that's uh, the point,
2: what Orwell said, right. That's exactly from George Orwell. And it's very apropos of what you were discussing earlier. You know, the thing that's that's most striking about what uh, Bill Patelow has exposed here. And by the way, uh, I don't think we can emphasize enough, Neil and I, how potentially harmful to the institutional side that we're always dealing with, including the court system. I, I very much hasten to add that all these institutional people have gotten away with what they've gotten away with in large measure because they keep raising the bar of what we have to present on our side, evidence wise, demonstration wise, pleading wise, documentation wise. I mean, it just goes on and on what we have to present to get our cases, well, to get our cases, uh, you know, past the demure and motion dismiss stage uh, at a minimum here, you know, in a non judicial foreclosure state like California um, so when you, you apply all that in the real world what it means that well, well, what it means is these judges need to, to be made to see that fraud is fraud and the latest revelations and soon to be provided explications on a future Neil Garfield show from Del Padalo, you know, our intention is that this will finally blow a real hole in the institutional defendants, the judges that support them, the whole system that's propping up this what's still a house of cards. It seems like it's a veritable fortress, but in reality it is a house of cards. And one of the ways that the institutional people and and all their various uh, guises and layers and everything else, one of the ways that they've been able to push all this out is, you know, this whole distinction between void and voidable, it's, it's kind of the legal framing of the day. I mean, the legal framework terminology kind of modifies and changes every two to three years. Now we've at least on our side and from our side pushed the opposition into a corner where if they can't show only voidable, they're in deep trouble and they're in danger of losing the motion, losing the case, having to pony up real settlement value or end up in trial and getting cream there. So one of the critical ways that I see here in California and, and in other non-judicial foreclosure states, the opposition attorneys and the judges, what they're doing now is just signing off on this idea that, oh, if there's robo signing, that's that goes to uh, to only create avoidable transaction and avoidable instrument related to that transaction meaning it can be cured by going back to the default position, which is, you know, we the homeowners and borrowers and the people who who entered this transaction originally to get just a mortgage loan on our house, you know, we the people, so to speak, we are still not going to get our situation resolved in the court system so they hope on the institutional side, because now the big cry of the day is, "Well, okay, there was robo signing, but that makes the transaction unavoidable." Well, well, number one, that's an know, outrageous. Yeah, that's an outrageous I, position. Because, it sure is. It sure is. And yeah, go
1: ahead and go ahead and address that, Neil. The the uh, um, well, I got two things to say to that, actually. The void and voidable argument is interesting as to potentially assignments, because those parties are going to say, yeah, we ratify it. The problem that is introduced by Bill Patelow's revelation is that this goes to the note that was signed by the the so-called borrower. I say so-called borrower because he did get the money and he has a liability, but he did not enter into the loan contract that he thought he did. The The idea of of saying that that is not void, it's voidable, becomes even more preposterous when you apply it to a promissory note that's being duplicated an infinite number of times. So... I think that's that's going to present a problem. The other thing which I will reveal uh, from one of my deep background sources that I have not corroborated, but it certainly is interesting. That person told me that the national security card was played here in that the fear was that the whole financial system would collapse and take the country with it and that this national security issue was communicated to judges across the country. I don't know if that's true. I haven't heard that from anyone else and I have not corroborated it, but I thought I would share that as perhaps one of the reasons why not all, but most judges are adamant about their position that the bank should win. And what they're looking for is just a hook that they can hang their decision on and uh, uh, and then leave it to an appellate court who, for reasons of its own, will affirm the decision. Uh, frequently without comment. So I think that the, two th- the main takeaway from this, or two takeaways, is that the actual practice of so-called reapplying signature images on stored copies may well be, as you say, Charles, the, uh, the shot that, that opens up a, a large hole. And in doing that, people may finally start asking the central question of if the originals were lost, we already have a system for dealing with that. All they have to do is prove that they were the owner of the debt and that they had the, the note, but they don't have it anymore. It's not a hard thing to do, but it does require them to actually say they're the owner of the debt, which they can't do because they've never entered into any financial transaction which they, in which they purchased the debt, the note, the mortgage, or anything. But most importantly is the debt, because that's the money trail. The, the, the note, the mortgage, that's the paper trail. But they didn't buy any of it. And the reason we know that, this is corroborated in uh, hundreds of cases, but also by the practice in, in, in millions of cases they never say that they're a holder in due course. They say they're a holder. Now, besides the fact that when you take um, uh, possession of an instrument that's already in default, it ceases to become a negotiable instrument, and therefore the holder designation probably doesn't apply. But even if it did, even if the UCC applied, even if it was a negotiable instrument, If they had purchased the debt, they would be claiming that they're holders in due course. Why? Because it's only a holder in due course that takes that instrument in good faith and without knowledge of the borrower's defenses and can enforce it despite the fact that the borrower does have defenses. But they never allege that they are holders in due course. They only allege that they're holders, which means they're admitting that they did not buy the debt. They did not buy the note. They did not buy the mortgage, which under Article 9 of the UCC, in order to enforce a mortgage, you need to have paid value for it. So what I'm uh, saying here is that oh and by the way let me just point out the whole way that this revelation occurred with Bill Padalo is that he paid attention he looked at everything and realized that somebody was taking credit for the creation of the instrument and it was Visionet it was a uh, signed by a person from Visionet and he looked up that person and found that she worked at Visionet, and then looked them up, found out what they did, and then had communication with them as though he was a prospective customer. So he knows for sure that what they're doing is they're applying signature images on stored copies of instruments, and with the help of LPS, they're... Um, or without it, they are fabricating the instruments themselves, storing it, and then applying the signature. Uh, Applying a signature without the consent of somebody is forgery. Once you do that, you've committed a crime. You've certainly committed a civilly illegal act.
2: Precisely. Precisely. I mean, I think we're finally at a place where this is literally a bridge too far in terms of what the institutional players have been doing and will continue to do until and unless we call them on it. And robo-signing is bad enough because, you know, a number of the, the analyses in, you know, Bill's blog post They also apply to robo-signing, and this is even beyond robo-signing because just as a robo-signer is not specifically reviewing a particular document and essentially signing after the review of that same document, confirming that the contents are bona fide, what's supposed to be there is, is there, what's not supposed to be there is not there, it's an actual particularized review that has not been happening at all in the RoboSigning environment. Literally thousands of documents are signed per day by a given robo signer, And that's bad enough and that's outrageous enough. But as Neil just said, this is even dramatically beyond that. Now you don't even have a signature. So even when the court signed off on some bogus employee designation where somebody who's actually – you know, a lower or mid-level functionary in some financial institution is all of a sudden a vice president for MERS for purposes of signing uh, these foreclosure documents, as much as the courts have ratified that kind of fraud, I think it's it's asking too much uh, of the system. And it's It's not that I'm giving credit to the the, the institutional side and and how bad and craven they've behaved in terms of perpetuating these frauds. Where you don't even have a signer now, where you're simply doing a cut and paste, that is so outside the bounds. It is so completely beyond any kind of acceptable declaration format that, yes, we're in the the level of finally an acknowledgement that there's civil liability on the other side, that those documents that relied on this type of cut and pasting are fraudulent, and that, you know, there's even potential criminal liability. I mean that's that's where this should go and that's where Neil and I are going to push things so
1: that it will go. You know one of the other things that, that Bill found out is that they perform what they call an automated review to uh, be the foundation of an affidavit in which some person is saying that they reviewed it and that everything is correct. There is no review. There's no human review. Which is a direct violation of the consent judgment in the 50-state uh, settlement. So, and and I, I, I am imagining a process here. Considering the degree of automation that they use, is that the whole system is pre-programmed so that if you know there's no note, the system automatically creates it, signs it and creates a package. If there's no mortgage, they create it, sign it, put the, uh, get the original uh, uh, recording stamp image on there, put that on it. It's, it's, it's mind-boggling when you think of what the trial lawyer is up against here in having to examine every single document and even if he does and even if you got a forensic examiner it may not be that clear that a that a forged fabricated document is in fact forged or fabricated which is why you need to go into discovery in order to determine that they have a relationship with visionet or a company like Visionet. Remember that um, uh, we've talked about here on the show, the numbers put out by services as to payments by the borrower and all kinds of expenses and so forth. Everybody seems to accept those numbers even when they're actually dead wrong. Hardly anyone checks the numbers to see if the right to reinstate has been accurately stated and how much is required. It often is not. I've had several cases like that. And now people like Bill Padalo are drilling down deeper, seeing that in modification and even end-of-the-month statements, the numbers are wrong and based upon false and misleading representations. And I have pointed out that the real reason for this is just a, uh, a replay of their basic playbook. They create multiple IT platforms and the intent to drive the homeowner nuts and to sidestep lawyers who are not accountants. Those multiple IT platforms now include uh, uh, at least one of them, and there's another one that Bill has pointed out to me that I haven't researched myself, um, uh, outsource vendors, like Visionet, for the banks that perform acts that are illegal. It's like how the mob works distancing the boss from the mayhem created by an illegal enterprise. And what that platform does is take the image copy of unknown origin. It could have been a complete fabrication from the start, and I imagine it probably is. Or creates an original and then using laser laser and mechanical means creates the signature of anyone they want as long as they have a sample of the signature that is called forgery my friends unless the person's signature was put there with permission and direction from the person whose name was signed how many of you out there would give or ratify the, the act of forging your name to a note that you don't want any part of right now? I think the answer is zero. I'd be surprised if it wasn't. So this business, going back, Charles, to your point about void and voidable, this business of, you know, what difference does it make? Well, it makes a world of difference because if they have the capacity to produce one, Good looking original that isn't really an original, then they have the capacity to produce a thousand of them. And besides the obvious windfall to them of selling the loan a thousand times, there is the liability to the homeowner whose signature was placed on these thousand original notes, where any one of the parties who come into possession of that note can become a possessor with rights to enforce or perhaps a holder, and even a holder in due course where the um, uh, the homeowner cannot even raise defenses except to say, I didn't sign that. Proving that, which is Charles' point, is the tough part, and that's where the ground game, you know, wins the day. Because you have to be prepared, either through discovery or investigation or both, to take this to their doorstep. And
2: you also exactly. have to be.
1: Prepared. Yeah.
2: Yeah, exactly, Neil. I mean, especially in non judicial foreclosure states like California, now that the Homeowner Bill of Rights is enabling a lot of borrowers, not all borrowers, but a lot, to get past demure and motion to dismiss, it's opened up the channels for discovery. And of course, the institutional attorneys are absolutely set up for that and they tend to jump on it pretty quickly. So in many of these cases, the borrower ends up somewhat on the defensive dealing with the discovery issues, you know, which as always, having a specialized attorney makes that much more straightforward to deal with than any other arrangement. That being said, to Neil's point, this is absolutely an opportunity during that period between the motion to dismiss and the defeat of that, particularly with if you went on a homeowner Bill of Rights cause of action, whether it's California or any other non judicial foreclosure state, your property cannot be sold while your litigation is pending. And as importantly, your case is going to trial unless it can be dismissed by the opposition with a timely filing of a motion for summary judgment or a motion for judgment on the pleadings. You rarely will see the latter one, the judgment on the pleadings motion, for reasons we won't get into today. You will see quite a bit of motions for summary judgment, which are largely unwarranted, but unfortunately, a lot of judges will sign off on those. Nevertheless, in the typical litigation scenario, particularly in California, you're going to have several months to hit up the opposition with some serious discovery. And if you're dealing with your own discovery, that's that's even a good defense related to that, uh, because if you need extensions and that type of thing, you're more likely to get them if the other side is dealing
1: with your discovery. All right, you know, I'm, gonna do a quick, I'm gonna do a quick segue here, because as it turns out, I didn't realize, uh, uh, Bill Padillo is with us. Welcome, Bill.
3: <laughs> well, hi, gentlemen. I've been listening. Good show.
2: Yeah, hey, Bill. Good, to, good, hi, good to have
3: you on here. Yeah, I was just uh, traveling and uh, just just getting back in the driver's seat here, <laughs> locally. But uh, no, I
2: appreciate all the uh, the good words. Very good show tonight. Uh,
1: thank yeah, you. Yeah, we've been talking um,
2: about your issue, and we'd love to have some more uh, input on that
3: well you know I, I think we're getting every day more and more closer uh to uh, showing that you know this is uh, a pattern in practice that um is going on widespread and and uh... i have a couple of deposition transcripts from a case i'm working on right now that i'm sure will come to light at some point in the near future but um, it's very interesting even the bank servicers lawyer uh... i have one transcript that he's admitting in his deposition that uh... these notes he's never seen the original note that he prints the print them off uh, uh... the computer system uh... he essentially admits that uh... the endorsement of cynthia riley this is of course a wamu note uh, for those of you familiar with that name, uh, he admits that that endorsement was not on the note when he took over the case in two thousand and eleven um, i mean it 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 's getting more and more brazenly obvious based on admissions, based on evidence, based on uh, you know the article I wrote here on visionet and now uh, I, I find more and more and more of these entities out there they're uh, uh, in fact just a side note on this visionet. When he tells me to order the trailing docs product that they offer, I plug in the trailing docs for that, and it leads me to Bangalore, India. You know, and and in talking to forensics analy- analyzers of these uh, notes and stuff like that through the years, there's been a suspicion that much of the uh, imaging of these documents is pro- are produced offshore. Uh, you know, I can't corroborate that yet, but there's a speculation that that's the case. <laughs>
1: Well, I think it i think it is the case, uh, uh, or has been the case. I'm not sure uh, if it still is or if it is again. Uh, I know that there was some disagreement amongst the majors, and this I'm positive of, and it has been corroborated, in terms of the use of MERS and certain other practices where Chase decided that it did not want to join with the other too-big-to-fail banks and went its own way and then came back again. So it's entirely possible that in that, in those transitions, and there were a lot of them, uh, with the usual musical chairs of entities, uh, that um, I I know that they were using offshore uh, labor, um, uh, but I think that they limited the offshore use because they were not, uh, confident that what was being done offshore, you know, what, what goes on in Vegas stays in Vegas. They weren't sure that it was going to stay there and that their whole system could be blown up with disclosure. So um, I think that's why they uh, were, were finding uh, many of these uh, uh, companies, LPS, uh, now Black Knight, uh, Visionet, and uh, uh, the other one that you, me- uh, you mentioned in your email today, um, I-, I think there's more and more evidence that they are bringing those things home so that they can control the flow of information and be more persuasive with their threats if somebody th- threatens to go public with the truth.
3: Yeah, I mean, but, a question I I'd pose to you guys in talking about discovery is, uh, look, I, it, it's clear, at least from my experience, uh, when I look at these documents presented in discovery, that they're redacting these things, they're uh, withholding documents. No matter how many times you motion to compel this stuff, uh, they're not coughing it up, and they and they just simply come in and they lie. You know, how 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 do you get around that when you're trying to play by the rules and you're trying to you know be honest and and uh, do it the right way, and you're dealing against some of these entities that are just a flat-out lie, how, how do you handle
1: that? Well, I can answer that because it's part of my instruction to lawyers when I conduct seminars. If you're going to be a trial lawyer, you have to be willing to get into the face of the judge, even if he gets mad, even if he thinks less of you, even if he ridicules you, even if you get a pie in the face. So, for example, I had one of those situations uh, recently in Orlando, and I said to the judge, this is very interesting, judge. At what point do your orders that are signed and entered in the record actually mean anything? And you could see, you know, that he was flushing a little. He was angry. And he said, at every point. I said, then why aren't you acting like it here? This is the third time we're back on the same issue. What does it take for you to say that they're fooling around here, they're in contempt of court, and they're going to have to pay a penalty? I'm not asking for anything stupid here. You're saying I'm entitled to it. They're not doing it, and you're not doing anything about it. So at what point does your order mean anything? And at that point, things changed. He did take a short break before he (laughs) came back. (laughs) But I've been in cuffs twice in my 40 years where judges got angry at me, You have to be ready to do that because the homeowner is not able to do that for themselves. You have to be the warrior. You have to be the one that gets wounded or shot or whatever. That's why we have a military where people are willing to lose their lives for us. As lawyers, we don't lose our lives, but we have to be willing to take a pie in the face. And if we don't do that, then the judge and the opposing lawyers and the bank and everybody else is going to run over you like you weren't even there. Uh, Neil, 100% agreement
2: here, and I've I've noticed the same thing. You absolutely have to get in the face of these judges to even get a chance to have the result you want in the vast majority of cases. One thing I will say from a strategic point of view is – if we can apply the intel that Bill has uncovered here, and, you know, this is kind of the front end and in some ways the mid end of what we can bring to the table in an evidentiary setting and the appropriate hearings and, you know, sanction motions to compel discovery that we'll put on the other side when they don't provide proper documents. If you're in a setting where maybe only one in 20 cases does a judge have to deal with a principled attorney along the lines of what you were just saying, Neil, and I do this myself in California, we need to make this one out of every three times, one out of every four times. In other words, if there are attorneys all over the country, and even in some limited cases, pro-pers who have not just the intention but the intelligence to bring this fight – on their own terms, we bring that to the table. We make this a mini cottage industry of discovery motions and discovery demands related to what we're talking about today and that we'll talk about soon in the future. That could be a game changer. I mean, strategically, I think you're right. the way to get them on the defensive is to make them deal with this time and time again. And I'm talking not just about the opponent's
1: and the attorneys on the all right.
2: outside, I'm talking about the judges as well.
1: We've got a hard break here. Uh, uh, we've, we've run out of time. Uh, Bill Padaleau, I thank you for joining us. Uh, Charles Marshall, as always, a uh, great co-host. And uh, we'll be thank seeing uh, all of us uh, possibly one more time this month, if not then January 5th. Thank you for joining us, and good night.